if you were here last time, you will know that we were thinking a bit about the fact that something, something is not right in the world. And we know that, but we can do little about it. So maybe it's something that's not right with us. We, we long to change, but we're powerless to change. I, I want to be kinder in the way that I think, and yet still I, I attack people in my mind. I criticise them, I judge them mentally when they, when they annoy me. I, I want to be more patient, but how easily I, I, I just lose my rag with folk. My, my fuse is too short. I long to be more generous, but, but money and stuff, it, it just grabs a hold of me and I can't give it up, I can't let go. I, I can't be the generous person that I want to. And from people I speak to, that seems to be a fairly sort of universal thought. That's something real in the way that we live, in the society that we're in. We know something's wrong and so we end up trying all kinds of stuff to make it right again. It means it's a breeding ground for various numerous philosophies and ideas and thoughts and things that promise to change us but never really work. Those self-help manuals are very popular. Three steps to this. Seven steps to the new you, whatever it might be. They allure us and they woo us and they promise us progress and change and, and growth and, well. It's interesting, one such book, it seems to me, is the grandfather of many of these books and it's called The Power of Positive Thinking. Um, written in the 50s, actually written by an American pastor um, in New York, a guy called Norman Vincent Peale. Um, and it's, I've been looking into it this week and it's a fairly controversial book. It's controversial for a number of reasons. Different groups have got different problems with it. Some people don't like it because actually it is so Christian. Uh, you're asked to memorise scripture throughout the book as you work your way in this sort of change project. Some people don't like it because it sort of subjectivises faith. It's all about me and me achieving my goals uh, and in a sense, God's glory is removed from the situation. It's this journey that I'm on and me changing. So you verses pulled um, things like, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, or other such things. And yet it seems to me there is a very helpful link that Norman Vincent Peale makes with this problem that we have, and that is that within me there are interconnections. There are various dimensions as to who I am, the way that I think perhaps, the way that I feel, or my lifestyle, my actions, and these are linked together. So you can probably tell from the title of the book, his big thing is you change how you think and you'll change how you live. Change what you think about, you'll change your actions, you'll change what you do. And it seems to me actually that is true in biblical terms, in other places in the New Testament, Paul will even say things like, set your minds on things above, in Colossians. Change how you think, and you'll change who you are. But Paul here, in these verses today, in Romans 8, it seems to me it's actually the other way around. We'll come on to it in a bit, but it's rather, it's, it's, it's be different, live differently, because you are changed, because of what has happened to you. Your identity has been transformed. Now be the different person that you are. Think in a different way because God has transformed you. Now last week we were thinking, if you remember at the end of, at the start of chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, we were thinking that because Jesus has been condemned, 
Because he has died in our place, because he has dealt with our guilt, he was the sin offering, do you remember? We look back at the Old Testament there. And then we don't have to be worried about God judging us because he's taken it for us. But it was more than that. It wasn't just, here is Jesus, he dies in your place, you are free. It was more. Do you remember we talked about having a donor card? Remember your donor card? It's this thing that really kicks into place when you die. There's not much point in having a donor card in your wallet until you're dead, really. And the Christian faith is not like that. The Christian faith starts now. We start changing. Now it's not all about when you die, then things kick in. It's what happens now. And so Paul was saying we can begin our life now. We can begin our freedom now. Get this straight in your minds, he says. One of the key things that will change as you start to be this new person now is how you think. What your minds are set upon. Okay, so, so you're not condemned, but life begins now. What does that life that begins now look like? It looks like you thinking differently, having a different mindset. So if you're taking notes, uh, two points for this evening. The first one on the screen there, a new power for thinking, verse 5 to 8. I'm actually going to read those verses again, and I want you to notice, if you like, the, the black or whiteness about it. The fact that there is no grey area. There are two types of thinking possible that Paul outlines. Let me read for us. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Did you see the two? There are only two. It's either a mind set on what the flesh desires, which he says is death, which is hostile to God. It does not submit to his law. It cannot please him. Or... It's a mind set on what the Spirit desires, which he says it is life, it is peace. Paul's being very blunt. Of course, there's, there's diversity within humanity, rich diversity, glorious diversity. We see a glimpse of that in Oxford as, as the nations meet and study and work and research. But Paul says, when it comes down to it, there are only two options. You can cut the human race down the middle. Either your mind is set on fleshly things, or the spirit. And he says, regardless of how good you are, therefore, regardless of how generous or kind or polite or decent, if you're not filled with the spirit of God then your mind will be anti-God. It will be hostile towards him. And that trajectory, says Paul, is towards death. And there are those that we can see that, and we're okay with that. The proverbial bad guys in society, the, the tabloid targets, the people that we're meant to hate, that we're meant to not like very much. But we struggle with the good guys, don't we? Those people who are kind... And yet, Paul says, 
that their minds are set on what the flesh desires. Is Paul really being fair? We struggle because we know so many nice people around. People who who put Christians in their place by their generosity and their kindness and their goodness. I think I might have shared this already here, not so long ago at Maldon Road, but we have some very good friends uh, from, from Birmingham, where we used to live for many years. And they are incredibly kind. They are a couple of the nicest people you will ever meet, genuinely. They pour themselves out into others' lives. They pour themselves out for the sake of their children. They're the sort of people you can always rely on at the last minute to come and help and to serve and to to babysit because you've got to go and do something or whatever it might be. They are genuine and they are lovely. But it's fascinating because when you speak to them of grace, then they don't like it. If you say that actually you, you will never be good enough for God, what you do will never earn a relationship with God. And frankly, they were hostile. They're still very good friends of ours, but they did not like grace at all. And suddenly you see that they're being nice and generous and kind and pouring themselves out for others is about works. To be told they could not keep the law, as it were, removed their assurance. And it was fascinating then how they changed. They were initially intrigued by this, but then they found it quite offensive. They still do. Suddenly you saw what was going on inside through the way that they lived. Outwardly they they were and they are very good. They're very kind people. Inwardly, though, you see the motivation. It may just be worth, helpfully, to think about what flesh means, though, as well. I'm aware that some of you haven't been around week by week by week. Um, let's just unpack that slightly. It's there, it's in verse 5, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 7, it's in verse 8, it's in verse 9. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? What does that actually look like, to have minds set on what the flesh desires? I was saying to some of the uh, students a few weeks ago that the best sort of paraphrase I've come across for flesh, the sinful nature, if you like, is, is the selfish self. That's what flesh means. The selfish self that always foundationally says, well, what can I get out of this? What, what's in it for me? Serve me, satisfy me. And even if we look like we're doing nice stuff and good stuff, the, the stark reality is those questions can still be there when we examine motives. What's in it for me? How will my actions here, even if I'm serving others, affect me? Will I be spotted? Will people think well of me because I'm serving? I'm aware that many of you um, either publicly won't want to admit to watching Friends, or perhaps even some of you might be too young to know what Friends is. Um, If that's you, come and chat to me afterwards. Um, But there was a fascinating example of this, actually, this idea of of your motives behind what you do. Back in the day in Friends, there was an episode where one of the characters, Phoebe, um, the sort of dappy blonde one, was wrestling 
with the fact that we are unable to do selfless good works. Remember that one? Anybody else? Some odd nods. <laughs> I knew you watched it, really. So even if no one knows about it, even if it's a complete secret that we are doing something for other people, then we can still feel pride. It can still be self-serving in a sense. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Notice too, again, the order of how this works. We've said at the start, it's not like these self-help books that say, think like this and your lives will change. Stop negative thought patterns and you will begin to live differently. Paul says it's quite different. He says, verse 5, in accordance with the Spirit, because you think according to what the Spirit desires. Actually, it's like this. It's rather more, your mind is set on what the Spirit desires because of his work in you. You see, it's the opposite way around. You can think differently because supernaturally he has changed you and transformed you to be one of his. He's changing your attitudes and your, uh, your, um, your mindsets, your priorities. It's, so not think differently and change, rather because you are different. And change how you think, change your mindset. Three brief um, implications. We think that kind of thought through for what that might mean for us. The first one to say is that God can change people. It's worth being reminded of that sometimes. So for the Christian, Phoebe is wrong. Actually, it is possible to do a selfless good work. Something where we serve other people and, and don't expect payment back. We do it simply for their good or for God's glory, both. To, to do good and not be proud about it. We can change... Uh, the way that we think has changed because of who we now are. Second one is only God can change people. So if we change how we think because of the Spirit's work in us, then it seems to me we can have perhaps um, an overemphasis or, or we can be too secure in trying to intellectually engage with people only as we perhaps usually do evangelism. Don't mishear me, I'm not saying the Christian faith doesn't make rational sense, but I am saying we need God to change how people think. Because it is he who can do that. There were people in Jesus' day who, who saw his miracles, who saw him being uh, the son of God, and yet they would not bow the knee to him. They still hated him. So we can argue with people till we're blue in the face. But unless the Lord does a work in their hearts so that they change how they think, then actually it doesn't work. The third one as well, it just strikes me in coming from these verses, is that there is a danger for us as Christians of sort of drifting back. So we have a new power for thinking, but we can easily drift back into thinking as we used to. We're still in these sinful bodies, we're still, in a sense, in the flesh, we can still have a tendency to follow the way of the selfish self because of the bodies that we're in. And so those questions do resonate, don't they? If we're honest. What's in it for me? Why won't you serve me? Why won't you satisfy me? Will you listen to what I'm saying and my opinions and my attitudes? Why didn't you do as I suggested? 
How are we to change? How are we to move away from these selfish questions, the selfish stuff, fleshly stuff? Well, it seems to me then if who we are changes how we think, then we need to ask the question secondly, well, who am I now? Who am I as a Christian? Which is our second point. There we go, a new power for living, verse 9 to 11. And I just very briefly, in those two verses there, want, to see, want you to see four different things that come up. Four different newnesses, if you like. Four different implications because of this new power that's living in us. New aspects of who we are. The first one in verse 9 is that you are part, I put it, of a new world, verse 9. Or as Paul puts it there, a new realm. The realm of the spirit rather than the realm of the flesh. Now you're a Christian, it's as if you live in a new place. You're part of a new system. Because God's spirit dwells in you, so you dwell in a new realm. You're no longer under the influence of the the realm of the land of the flesh, but you're in the land of the spirit now. Live as if you're there. A place where things are different, a place where you don't do the things as you used to do them. A place where you don't think in the way that you used to think. But live in such a way that accords with who you are. Who you are in Christ. A place where you can please God. And so secondly, you're under a new ownership, verse 9. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have, have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's rather like we saw back in chapter 6, actually. Do you remember we have a new ownership? A Christian belongs to a different person. We do things differently. It's it's for all those as well, do you see, who have the Holy Spirit. It's not the case that there are the superhero Christians that we, we long to get alongside and we long to ask them our difficult questions and we long to um, rub shoulders with them. No, no, all Christians have God's Holy Spirit. All of them. However new a Christian you might be, however shaky your faith might be, if you're one of his, you have his Holy Spirit living in you. It seems to me that is the mark of the authentic Christian. We've been seeing it week on week on week through chapters 5 to 8. God's Holy Spirit lives in you. You belong to somebody new now. Paul said in weeks gone by, he said... You were in Adam. You were marked by indwelling sin. Now you are in Christ. You are marked by his Holy Spirit. Notice too, halfway through verse 9, it's just interesting that the language changes. It moves from the Spirit of God to the Spirit of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Paul changes the way he describes the spirit that lives in Christians. And I don't think he's saying that the two are interchangeable or, or the three are interchangeable. We have a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. We can't jumble them up. But I think Paul is saying that they are, they are inseparable. They're not interchangeable, but they are inseparable. You have the Spirit of Christ living in you? Well, then you will be raised as he was. 
which means, Paul says, all this stuff we're looking at in these verses, it's not just theory, it's not just theology, it's not just for teaching on a Sunday so you can answer the questions in Bible studies, this is very practical. Because first implication, verse 10, you have a new life. Okay, you have a new ownership. God's Spirit living in you, the Spirit of Christ, who was raised from the dead, so you have a new life. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. There's a sense in which we're still affected by Adam and Eve's first sin. We, we, we walk out on God... We think it will bring us life and freedom and joy and hope and we'll lose these horrible shackles. But actually we're not free at all. We just have death. And yet now, do you see, as Christ is in us, verse 10, the one who defeated sin and death, so we have life. True resurrection life. It means we can begin to live as we were made to live. Sure, we will struggle day by day by day, but bit by bit by bit, God is changing us to give us the life that he longs for us to have so that we become more like his son. It seems to me that that promise of life has always been there in the Bible. As you read through the Old Testament, you see again and again and again God promising that he will come and bring life. He will bring his spirit and put it in dead bodies. Various passages will say that to you. One, just to note and read quickly, is Ezekiel 37. Context is Ezekiel, who's the prophet, is standing over the valley of dry bones. And what does he say? The Lord is speaking to him about what he will do, and he says this, verse 5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. And so to dead people, Paul says, come to life. Have God's spirit living in you. Be alive. God himself coming to live within his people and bring life. Which finally means, verse 11, we have a new hope. Fourth little implication. Verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. It seems to me Paul is talking about the definite future that we have because of the definite past that we can look at. You want to know with certainty about what's to come? Then look at the cross. If God who raised Jesus is in you by his spirit, then you too will, will be raised, and that is not in doubt. It will happen. You're weak and you're mortal and your puny bodies that decay and die and are destined for the grave, well, they will be raised. They will be raised anew. And it won't be resuscitation. 
But like Christ, it will be resurrection. New bodies. However you look at the texts, it seems to me the clear reality is Jesus dies and then he was alive again. It wasn't that he lived um, through their hearts uh, in his teaching or as they kind of kept memorial things. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper shortly. He was dead and is alive again. Bishop of Durham, back at the start of the 20th century, a guy called Handley Maul, he loved these verses. He said this. He said, Wonderful is this deep characteristic of the scripture. It is gospel for the body. In Christ, the body is seen to be something far different from the mere clog or prison or chrysalis of the soul. It is its destined implement, may we not say, its mighty wings in prospect for the life of glory. Do we say anything? Bodies matter. Resurrection will be physical. It'll be real. It'll be nitty and gritty and earthy. Christ was raised bodily, and so will you be. A new hope we have because of His Spirit living in us. Two things to chew on as we finish. First is again just to say, notice the the physicality and the earthiness of these verses. We must uh, wean ourselves away from the false assertion that, that it's just theology, it is just sort of spiritual and ethereal. I know it's physical. Francis Schaeffer, um, a writer, a thinker, a theologian, says this on this verse, he says, our redemption is not just some far-off, transcendental thing relating only to the world of ideas. It has to do with the full person. Just as our future salvation will involve the full redemption and resurrection of the body, so also in this present life, our redemption is to mean something in terms of our physical bodies. It is the very antithesis of the emphasis on the transcendental in much of modern theology. He says, physical is not bad, we're bodily. We will be raised bodily. And so secondly, because of God's spirit living in us, we can now please God. That seems to be the overarching structure in these verses. In, in verse 8, you see, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however in a different realm so you can please God through God's spirit living in every Christian now giving them life now and so Paul would say to us go this week and please God through what you do go and live go and live in the way that you were meant to with his spirit living in you